Uh, it's great to be in here. In general, I've spent the last few weeks uh, in Upstreet with uh, your kids, um, and as you can see, as we just shared, there, we, we just we have fantastic kids here. They're uh, so compassionate. They're so excited to learn about the world and about God and about how to share God's love with other kids. Um, like Gretchen mentioned, that that project that they took on, it was really something. wasn't anything that we put to them or or kind of solicited from them. It was something that kind of they came up with on their own and they really wanted to be able to do more when they had heard about the earthquake in Haiti, which then led to their other efforts. It's really a great story and I'm glad we got to share that with you today. Uh, so this is the ninth week of our Good News series, which means that we are now past the midway point of it. It's a long series and uh, I hope you all are enjoying it so far. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8 and I have to say it was pretty tough to kind of uh, whittle down a sermon out of so much. This is a really uh, kind of eventful chapter. A lot happens here, uh, not only in light of uh, kind of what leads up to it, but also in light of what follows. It's really kind of a pivotal chapter in, in the book. So let's just do a brief overview real quick. Um, Mark 8 starts with the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, it also has the Pharisees demanding a sign of Jesus. It has Jesus warning the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees. It has Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida. That's the story where Jesus uh, spits in the dirt and makes mud and then rubs it in the guy's eye, which, by the way, uh, the phrase, here's mud in your eye, like when you're, when you're toasting, that's where that comes from. It's like a, like a blessing. So next time uh, we take communion, maybe we'll, maybe that's how we'll do it. We'll say, here's mud in your eye. Uh, Peter's messianic confession, where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and then Jesus foretelling his own death. Uh, like I said, this, this chapter really is kind of a pivotal one um, Mark in general kind of moves very quickly. It's a short, terse book. And uh, Mark uses a lot of phrases. I think we've talked about this where he, he uses a lot of phrases like uh, immediately or about that time or right after that time. And it just kind of has this pace where everything moves forward. And sort of that, that pace has kind of led up to this chapter. And specifically, I think it kind of has pointed to Peter's confession of Jesus. You know, Jesus keeps talking about the, the secret or the mystery. He kind of like uses a lot of like, uh, like codified language to talk about uh, what I think is uh, the revelation that Peter gives us, which is that he confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And so kind of the ramp up to this chapter, uh, kind of everything's been aiming towards this point. And then I think kind of at this chapter, things kind of take a turn. And right after that, Jesus foretells his death. And I think that kind of the trajectory of the book starts moving towards Jesus' uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. So uh, narratively, this is a big reveal where, where Peter says Jesus is the Christ. And, um, but for the most part, I want to take a look at the feeding of the 4,000, uh, which occurs in verses 1 through 10. So let's go ahead and read that together. Uh, in those days, when there was a great, again, a great crowd... Without anything to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples replied, How can one feed people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them. And gave them to his disciples to distribute, and they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, 
seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So does this sound a little familiar? Like, do you remember a couple weeks ago when Carol taught the feeding of the 5,000? And it, it's really basically just the same story again. It really just, it, it, it's, it's a little puzzling that Mark would include the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. They're strikingly similar. He's the only one of the four Gospels to include both. And it really doesn't give us any new insight or information about Jesus or his methods or his ministry. It really is in every possible sense a beat-for-beat retelling of the first, chap- first story from chapter 6. Both accounts have these same elements in the same order. Jesus sees the crowd and expresses feeling compassion for them. He instructs the disciples to feed the crowd. They say they can't. Jesus asks how much food they have. They say that they have some bread and some fish. Jesus blesses, breaks it, and passes. There is enough and more. And then Jesus leaves. So why include this second story? What, what, does it, what does it tell us? What does it give us that we didn't already know from the first one? That Jesus is capable of this? We kind of already knew that. Well, for one thing, repetition was a rhetorical tool used to communicate emphasis. When you see something repeated... It's kind of a secret way that the author tells you, like, hey, pay attention, this is important. Like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, before he said a, a statement. Or when the angels in Revelation sing, holy, holy, holy. It's a way to say, this is not just true, but it's exceedingly true. It's not just important, it's exceedingly important. These are all instances where the author is really just trying to get your attention and say, pay attention to this. But what is Mark trying to drive home by doing this repetition? Well, the stories are very similar, but there are some subtle differences, and I think it's those differences that hold a clue as to what the author is trying to communicate here. Firstly, location, location, location. The first miraculous feeding from chapter 6 occurred near Bethsaida and would have been predominantly attended by Jews. The second feeding story took place in the region of the Decapolis and would have largely been occupied by Gentile inhabitants. Some people have made the case that the numbers within the story are significant as well. The first feeding, there's 12 baskets of food left over, 12 being representational of the tribes of Israel. And the second feeding, the story resulted in seven baskets of food left over, which by the same means is representational of, of totality. There's seven days of creation. You know, the, the seven is, means the whole world. So to say that Jesus had a miracle that was kind of gestured towards the Jews and the Gentiles, it's, it's all-encompassing. And so I think it's possible and likely, in fact, that Mark is trying to emphasize the, the main point of this is that God has compassion not just for his own people, but for everybody. So one way we can read this passage for ourselves in, in terms of application is to read it and identify with the crowd and understand that God cares for us. And I think that's a good, that's a valid reading. It's a good lesson to learn, right? God cares for us and he wants to meet our needs. But I think there's also a second way to read the story, and one where we not identify with the crowds, but with the disciples. And then the lesson kind of shifts. It's a little different. Jesus commands us, as he did his disciples, to join him in the work of his compassion. So I don't think anybody in here needs convincing that we're supposed to be compassionate, right? It's kind of, you know that Christians were supposed to be compassionate, right? And when we're not compassionate, it's not because we have some lapse where we don't know that we're supposed to be or or where we kind of forget that, but there are specific things that kind of impede 
or kind of suppress our compassion for other people. And I, I want to take a look at those. Uh, I'll call them the compassion killers. And uh, they're, they're the things that kind of stand in the way of our compassion, the way that I'm currently standing in the way of you getting all that delicious uh, potluck food that we have in the lobby. So don't worry, I'm going to try and be brief. Uh, so the compassion killers. The first is futility. This is where we feel overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the need that we see. You know, our, our compassion is, uh, is, is kind of suppressed because we don't feel like we're capable of meeting the needs uh, of the, uh, or, the, or, or healing the hurt that we see in the world. And this is what the disciples experience in verse 4 when they ask Jesus how they, in the middle of the desert, are supposed to find enough food to feed the thousands of people. All they could see were the number of hungry people and their own inability to meet that need. And even though they had just seen Jesus two chapters prior do the same thing, they still say, how, how are we, how's this supposed to happen? How are we supposed to do this? And so futility kind of results in two conditions in us. We can react to our sense of futility with exasperation. This is really common. I think it's kind of what the disciples say, like, we can't do this. This is, this is impossible. And so people kind of detach. They ignore the need that they see. They, uh, they give themselves over to distraction, you know, or diversion. Uh, depending on who you talk to, I'm a millennial. I don't, I don't really know. I, maybe. I feel like every few years there's like a new label that they give. Like it used to be that, you know, there were the, the boomers and they were like, I don't know, a couple decades worth of people. And then now, like, every few years, it's like, well, there's Generation X, Generation Y, there's Generation Z, there's Millennials, there's, you know, the, you know this generation, and that generation. Uh, but I remember distinctly being young and being told that I was part of the who cares generation or the, the, the generation, the whatever generation. And we were kind of, uh, kind of defined by our apathy. And... Um, People kind of assumed that, you know, our apathy was born out of a genuine uh, sense of detachment, that we, we genuinely didn't care about the world or its problems. And I don't think that was the case. I think looking back, uh, I think that our apathy wasn't born out of detachment. It was born out of exasperation. Uh, I, I'll turn to the, there's, John Mayer wrote this song called Waiting on the World to Change that really is kind of an anthem to what I'm, I'm talking about. And the lyrics say, me and all my friends were all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing and there's no way we ever could. Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting for the world to change. It's not that we don't care. We just know that the fight ain't fair. So we keep on waiting, waiting for the world to change. I think that this, uh, I mean, that I think really describes the futility that I'm, that I'm trying to express here. It's, it's the idea that, that just inadequacy. We, we, you know, we can't make any difference in the world, so we're just going to kind of wait. Um, there's a really famous picture called, uh, it's called The Little Girl and the Vulture. Uh, Time Magazine recently named it the, one of the 100 uh, most influential pictures ever taken, and it's, uh, it's a photograph. I, I, I was going to put it up on the screen, but it's kind of it's kind of hard to look at, and I didn't want it to be too much of a distraction. Uh, if you want to Google it, you can. 
Uh, it's a picture of this severely, severely malnourished Sudanese child that has collapsed on the side of the road uh, in the foreground. And then in the background, there's this vulture kind of pensive and waiting. Um, it's a profound picture. And it was taken during the Sudanese famine in the early 90s by a photographer named Kevin Carter. And uh, this photograph became kind of um, emblematic of this uh, region and all that it was suffering and really brought a lot of attention. And it really was kind of a very instrumental, very important photograph that was taken. Kevin Carter uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for this photo. It's the highest honor that you can win as a photographer. And then two months later, he took his own life. Uh, and in his note, in the note that he left, he talked about how he's seen so much suffering. And as a photographer, he's kind of cursed to only document and not affect any change. And it's, uh, he, he talks about this profound sense of uh, helplessness. And I think that that's uh, a natural thing, or not natural, but a, a common reaction to feeling futile, the futility. And that kind of suppresses our compassion. Secondarily, I think it's also possible to feel outrage, uh, kind, of the, kind of the opposite of that, where you, you see all that there is in the world, all of the heartache and all of the hurt and all of the lack and all the oppression, and you feel kind of outrage. Um, now, there's, there's anger that's good and right. There's, there's righteous anger, and that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the cheap, ineffectual outrage that we fling at each other on social media. I'm talking about that, that kind of pervasive adrenaline spike we get when we get a news alert on our phone. We're like, oh, gosh, what's happening now? Uh, you know, that, that, that anger that we feel. Righteous anger drives us toward action. Outrage clouds our minds and our judgment. Righteous anger fuels. Outrage consumes. So we have exasperation and we have outrage. And these are all kind of how we react to the sense of futility that we feel. So how, how do we combat futility? I love this uh, tweet that Brian Zahn said. He says, I know there's much to be angry about, but your soul cannot bear the strain of perpetual rage. Pray more. I think the answer is prayer. Um, for that, I want to take a look at a parable that Jesus taught in the book of Luke. Is this the parable of the unjust judge? I'm going to read it to you here, and then we're going to talk about it for a moment. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. And for a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming to me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? <clears throat> will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. This has always been kind of a confusing text for me because uh, on the surface it appears that Jesus is kind of uh, prescribing a method of prayer by which we engage God by kind of nagging him. Like, I don't, I don't like the relationship between this widow and the judge. Like, I don't think this is like a healthy thing, but it seems that Jesus is telling us this is, this is how you're supposed to pray. You just, you just keep, keep doing it and, and then eventually God will kind of capitulate and give you what you want. Uh, uh, I have a one-year-old son. Uh, he, his name is Ander. You all, most of you know him. 
Uh, he, he, you'll see him underfoot here in a little bit, I'm sure. Uh, but he's kind of at that stage where he's becoming very vocal, and he's starting, to, he's starting to engage language not just as a means of identifying things, like that's a ball, uh, you, know, that's a, you know, that's a pizza. That's, you know, it's mostly food. Most of his words are food. <laughs> Uh, but he's starting, to know, he's starting to learn that by saying things, he can actually request, like make, like kind of petition me for things. And so uh, his, his favorite food, head and shoulders above the rest, are bananas. And he's constantly asking for nanas. Nanas, 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 nanas. And so he'll sit there and like, he'll even be crying about something else. Yesterday, uh, he fell down. He was over in the corner playing with something and he, he fell down. And he went, oh, he started crying. Uh, and I went over and I said, hey, what's wrong, Andrew? And he goes, uh, nana? Like, <laughs> like he, just, he just knows like when he has my attention, he can ask for a banana. And here's the thing. Uh, one of the greatest joys you'll ever experience as a parent is hearing your child speak, uh, particularly hearing a child say dada or mama. And um, <laughs> uh, I remember when he first started, uh, it was like, oh man, it was just it was music. To, I, I was so happy. And now, I really just, I, I need him to shut up for five minutes. <laughs> because he's just constant, dada, nana, 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 nana. And here's the thing, I give him so many bananas. <laughs> I don't stop giving him bananas because it's the only way to get him to stop saying nana. In my dreams, I hear nana, 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 nana. I give him so many bananas, I'm surprised he hasn't turned yellow and like grown a rind of some kind. I don't know, like it's just remarkable how he, he's just alive because he's just mostly what he eats is bananas. They're not a complete food, I don't think. But uh, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I, I don't think Jesus is prescribing that method of prayer and I don't think Jesus is trying to say God is like that judge. I think he's contrasting that judge from the way God is. Jesus is not saying God needs to be constantly pestered to answer our prayers. He says, uh, will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. So then if, if, if Jesus is telling us God doesn't need that kind of prayer, if God doesn't need that kind of nagging, persistent, kind of uh, 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 constant prayer, why does he tell us to do it? If, it's, if God doesn't need that, if, if that's not how God responds to us, if that's not what God needs to take action on our behalf, why does he tell us to do it? I think that God does not require ceaseless prayer to ask. I think that prayer does not move or change God. Prayer changes us. Jesus tells us to pray constantly and to prevail in prayer, not because it's what God needs to move. It's what we need to deal with what we have and what we see in our life. Prayer changes us. Chris uh, Huritz says, Through activism, we confront toxicity in our world, but through contemplation, we confront it in ourselves. We pray not because we are evoking God to action. We pray because we, we need it. We, we need to confront our own toxicity. We need to confront our outrage, our exasperation, our sense of futility. These things change us. They shape us. They make us into agents of compassion. And one more quote from here. Pope Francis says, first you pray for the hungry, then you feed them. That's how prayer works. 
I think that's really profound. The next compassion killer I want to take a look at is certitude, sense of certainty. And this is how the Pharisees react to the miraculous feeding. Shortly, uh, immediately after the feeding story, the Pharisees confront Jesus and they demand of him a sign. It's interesting, Jesus just did this miracle. Just before that, he had healed a, a deaf and mute person. And then right after this, he heals a blind person. And they still come to him and they're like, hey, can you give us some kind of clue? Like, can you show us what you're all about? And uh, Jesus rebukes them and then he warns his disciples not to be like them. Because Jesus or his actions did not fit into their schema of what a Messiah would be or do, they came to him and demanded of him a sign. And I don't think it's because they weren't open to the idea that Jesus was a, a savior or a Messiah or a prophet, but it's because they weren't seeing anything that fit that bill. They had this locked-in image of what Jesus, of what a, a, a Messiah would be and, and do, and Jesus wasn't that. The yeast of the Pharisees is their intellectual rigidity. This is why when Jesus is admonishing his disciples about them, he quotes Jeremiah, talking about having eyes but failing to see and having ears and failing to hear. He's warning them that they are at risk of missing everything God was doing. And by the same measure, I want to challenge us today to be open to what God is doing now. The history of our faith has been written by people who were willing to let go about what they thought they knew and take hold of what God was doing then. Uh, if at any point in the history of Scripture or the church, someone kind of stopped and said, all right, we got, we got it, we got, we got God figured out, it would have stopped dead in its tracks. If, we, if it would have been like, okay, God's a burning bush, got it. And then when there's a, a you know, pillar of fire or, or a cloud, no, 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 that's not, that's not it, God's a burning bush. This is something else. That's not, don't, don't follow that. Or, or, if, uh, or a stream in the wilderness. Or Jesus. If at any point anyone was so locked into what God was in their mind that when God did something new or revealed God's self in a new way, they'd miss it and we wouldn't have it. The, the, the story, our history, our, the history of our faith was moved forward by people who were willing to let go. And we need to be able to do that today. To paraphrase something that I heard uh, Greg Boyd, who's an author and a pastor I really like, say, he says, you cannot claim to live in service of the truth unless you are open to the possibility that what you currently believe is wrong. I'm going to say that one more time. You cannot claim to live in service of the truth unless you are open to the possibility that what you currently believe is wrong. We live in a time when if one encounters information that challenges what they believe to be true, it's easier and less painful to go seek out different information than it is to change their mind. And unfortunately, we live in a time where misinformation abounds. If you were to ask me which characteristic of the Christian church here in America was a bigger hallmark, compassion or ideological certitude, I'd have to sadly admit it's the latter. Um, I'll just say this. If your view of God is holding you back from showing love to anybody, your view of God needs to change. If your view of Scripture is keeping you from extending grace to anybody, your view of Scripture needs to change. If your view of culture, gender, race, sexual ethics, or politics is keeping you from engaging your compassion for anybody, your views need to change. 
That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Self-interest is the next compassion killer. And this is where the personal cost of demonstrating compassion prevents us from doing so. I think this is what the disciples kind of express in the previous feeding story in chapter 6, where they tell Jesus that they, it would cost 200 denarii, denarii, how do you ever say that? To feed all these people. They were like, this is going to cost a fortune. It wasn't that they couldn't do it. It was just, it's going to cost too much. It's cost prohibitive. And this isn't just kind of the pragmatic conclusion we reach when we weigh the cost of generosity versus what we have or what we, what we can, can spare. It's deeper than that. This is kind of something that's more uh, innate or native to ourselves. On a deep, primal level of the human psyche, to have something and to give it away to somebody is really problematic. We have a really hard time doing it. It's an anathema. Humans are hardwired for self-preservation. Our biological impetus to acquire and amass and, and, and to retain resources for ourselves and for our family is a powerful force. We kind of have these, um, these kind of competing levels in the brain. Uh, so I don't want to go far, too far out in the weeds of this, but we kind of have the amygdala, um, which is kind of at the, it's at the top of our brain stem. This is what, um, if you ever heard someone call like uh, your lizard brain or your, your rat brain, this is like, this is the part of you that's like uh, in charge of keeping you alive. You know, this is the part that does like your heartbeat and your breathing. And when you are kind of have a fight or flight response, like when you're, when you're panicked, uh, this is the part that takes over. And it's just like, got to keep you alive. Like, Throw everything out the window, got to stay alive, which is why we usually, when in those moments where we have a fight or flight response, we, we usually act in a way that later on we kind of go, oh man, I wish, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, it, uh, I could tell you about situations at my old job where I kind of, you know, where that happens and my amygdala kind of takes over and afterwards I'm like, oh man, what was I doing? What did I say that for? Uh, and then we also have kind of the frontal cortex, which is what we associate with kind of our consciousness or our, our, um, our uh, capacity for generosity or for reason or for logic. And kind of the difference between these two parts of our brain, the amygdala is, is very kind of primal and it's very, um, it's very cheap calorically, like it doesn't require a lot to operate, um, like a lot of nutrients or oxygen, it's very, it's very efficient. And then our frontal cortex is kind of the outside, you know, more developed, we would call developed parts of our brain, where uh, it's very calorically expensive. And kind of when we are in fight or flight, it's the first thing to go. It like goes out the window. So like the next time like you feel like you kind of get that like triggered feeling where you're like, like angry, you know, nothing you're going to say or do is, is, is governed by your logical part of your brain. That's all your amygdala. So just for, forget about anything you're going to do or say there. But kind of, I think, uh, when we battle self-interest in, in, in engaging our compassion, it's these two parts of our brain, kind of like our, it's almost like these two governing agencies in our, in our person. And uh, there's an old poem that sometimes gets uh, attributed to Cherokees or different Native American tribes, but it's, it's a poem about two wolves. You may have heard it before, but I'm going to share it with you because it kind of illustrates this. An old man was once teaching his grandson about life. He said, a terrible fight is happening inside me. The fight is between two wolves. One is evil. It is pride, avarice, anger, hatred, and greed. The other is good. It is love, compassion, generosity, kindness, and benevolence. The same fight is going on inside you too. 
and inside every other person. Which wolf wins, asked the boy. The old man simply answered, the one you feed. We, we kind of have these two voices, these two kind of, um, kind of, uh, just kind of two pilot seats within us. And depending on which we feed, which we kind of give control over to more often, if we give in to our fear or our sense of self-preservation or a sense of loss, we kind of give, we're kind of feeding that, that evil wolf. And then when we kind of engage our compassion, when we engage our generosity, when we, when we show love, when we show selflessness, we kind of feed the other wolf. Um, lastly, the last compassion killer I want to take a look at is tribalism. And uh, I'm going to tell you all a story that's uh, going to be kind of difficult for me to tell. Um, this is kind of uh, something from my past and that's kind of fresh, and uh, I, I want to share it with you because I think it, it illustrates this really well. Um, I grew up in a church, and my family and I attended this church from when I was about six years old until I was about 22. And growing up, I had this friend. I'll call him Mike. Mike and I were pretty close. He was a little older than me. We were both on the worship team. He was a very talented musician. He was very charming, very charismatic. Everyone in the church loved him. He was kind of this golden boy of the church. His whole family was sort of a big deal. They'd been there for a long time. His dad was on staff. Several family members were involved in multiple ministries. One day, Mike was involved in a bit of a scandal. Word had gotten out that he had been engaged in a physical relationship with a significantly younger girl in the church. I'll call her Maria. The details and time frames were unclear, and there were various accounts of what had happened and when, but it really boiled down to her word against his. If he believed Maria, Mike was a sexual predator and had needed to be held accountable. And if he believed Mike, then much was being made out of very little. Maria was, in many ways, Mike's exact opposite. Whereas he was kind of this darling of the church, Maria was kind of sullen, a little reserved, kind of quiet. She had, this, um, she had this kind of skater, punk rock aesthetic, and she listened to heavy music and wore heavy makeup and was in, in, in every way kind of uh, the opposite of Mike. Mike was, Mike was kind of emblematic of the church, and she was very much kind of an outsider. She enjoyed being a bit of an iconoclast in a religious setting. I wish I could tell you that the story didn't play out the way that these stories usually do, but it did. The church rallied around Mike. After all, he truly was one of us, and she wasn't. Not really. Maria's parents were convinced, I would say pressured, not to take any legal action. Defense of Mike within the church became more and more full-throated and eventually gave way to aspersions made at Maria and her reputation. Talk turned to how she was always a little bit odd. She wears that makeup and listens to secular music. So-and-so told me that she does drugs. I heard she was an all-too-willing participant in all of it. You know, I bet she seduced him. I could also wish that I said something, that I raised my voice in dissent. But I went along with it. I didn't have a reason not to. I joined the chorus of Mike's defenders, and I ostracized Maria and her family in that venomously polite way that only Christians know how to do. And life went on. That's the thing. It all kind of blew over. I moved away. I went to college. The whole thing 
eventually faded from my memory. I can honestly say I probably hadn't thought about that whole situation in at least a decade. Then just the other day, I logged into Facebook. Someone had shared a news article with me. Mike, who is now in his mid-30s, was arrested for molesting a teenage girl. A few days later, another teenager came forward to say that he had also touched her, and then several more kids came forward. The youngest among his accusers was eight. All in all, no fewer than 15 charges of sexual assault involving minors have been filed, and he's sitting in a jail cell this very moment. As I read this news article, my stomach kind of dropped. Evidently, after I had moved away and lost touch with everyone, Mike had become a public school teacher and a camp counselor. He had spent most of his adult life working with children, and every indication was that he had been doing this all along. I finished the news article and I let my eyes wander down to the comments section and my stomach dropped to a new low again when I saw that one of the comments had come from Maria. In her comment, she recalled that Mike had started molesting her when she was nine and that it went on for years. She described the deep shame and embarrassment she felt before she told anyone in her shock when her accusations were rebuffed. How deeply and interminably the course of her life was affected, not just by what Mike had done, but what the church had done. We failed to protect her. We turned our back on her when she needed us the most. I allowed my need to belong, my sense of identity that I had within this group, to snuff out my compassion. I rationalized and I obfuscated, and I performed Olympic-level moral gymnastics to give my friend every conceivable justification and to allow myself to stay in line with my tribe and to turn my back on someone who needed me, someone who needed their community. In case you are wondering, that church still exists and its leadership is still defending Mike to this hour. And if I'm completely honest, one of the reasons I was a little nervous to share this story with you is because there's a pretty good chance that the recording of this sermon's gonna make its way to them. And even though I've been removed from the context of this group for years, they in every possible way have they have no bearing on my life whatsoever. I still I still feel like I still have something to lose. Like I, I don't want to fall out of my standing with this group. I'll tell you this story for two reasons. For one, I felt an urge to repent. That I turned my back on Maria, and I sinned against her. I was far too comfortable in a group that was far too comfortable turning their back on her when she desperately needed us and when we were undoubtedly responsible for her. But I'm also telling you this in the hopes that you will avoid the mistake that we made. In our society, we carry a lot of labels. We're all card-carrying members of so many groups and organizations. We, we self-identify as such and such, and we vote like this and that, and we, we have so many hyphens in front of our names to describe ourselves and to distinguish ourselves from one another. But just as Paul exhorted the Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer free or slave, there is no longer male or female. I say there is no longer black or white, there is no longer Israeli or Palestinian. There is no longer northerner or southerner. There is no longer gay or straight. There is no longer Democrat or Republican. There is no longer Catholic or Protestant, for all of you are one in Christ. In a moment, Carol's going to come 
and she's going to sing a song for us, and we're going to uh, take communion. If the servers could come forward, and I want to add one final thought for you. Uh, this is from Matthew 25. Bear with me while I read this. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you in, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. We do not show compassion to others merely because we want to be like Jesus. We show compassion to others because they are Jesus. I want to, um, I want to thank Mikkel for that powerful word. I am, as Hannah would say, uh, shooketh. Um, I, I really am. It's a good word. It's new to me. I haven't used it much, but I'm, I'm shook by that. As we come to the table today, I want you to know that those blockers of compassion that Mikkel spoke of are, are broken here. It is not futile to take these elements. It's not because we're certain of what it is, but because of the mystery that we're invited into. It's not even for a self-interest that we take it. But we take it to be a part of Christ who is in the world so that we too might be there. Not some private tribe to save ourselves, but a group that is with Christ all over. So we come to the table because it is the table of our Lord. And he invites us to participate. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. And as was their custom after the meal, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for your sins. Take and drink. Let's take and drink together. Almighty God, we worship you. We are grateful for your Son and our Savior. We are grateful for your Spirit that lives within us and gives us breath and life and animates our lives.
Lord, we pray that you would fill us with compassion. Compassion that overflows, that breaks through all those barriers, and that pours out into our lives and pours over onto our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our fellow students and everyone we come in contact with. Lord, we love you, but we want to love you more. In the name of Jesus, in the presence of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.